Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hand and walks among the seven lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, but have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Brilliant. Thank you, Anthony. Um, thanks, Rich, for the introduction. And, and thank you for those words, Rich, as well, for us as a church to consider. Um, just to say, in terms of teaching at the moment, I think this is one of the most exciting times, certainly for me, in terms of teaching for many years in the church, um, because there are a group of, of people meeting, talking, discussing what we're doing. Um, I particularly, Rob, want to thank you for chatting with me yesterday about this and um, for sharing the next bit. So um, when I'm finished, I'm going to be handing over to Rob, who's going to share some thoughts and also chair the next bit. Um, and the other thing I really want to stress about these letters is we, we know God is love and we know that God loves the church. And so these letters are not condemnatory letters. And as we go through these seven letters, I think it's really important that we remember that if you're feeling condemned, the condemnation is not a feeling that God wants to land on anyone. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. He does challenge and he does rebuke. God's always done that, but it's always within a context of love. And I think it's really important that we remember that as we look at the letters, but also that we remember that about our lives. When, when something is being prodded or identified in our lives, um, in our church or in any church, God is only ever doing it for good. He's only ever doing it out of a context of love and wanting us to be um, the best we can be. So today what we're going to be looking at is the first of the letters, which is Ephesus. Um, and I just want to remind you a couple of things from last week. So last week we spoke really about the purpose of the letters and about the structure. And we said that the word revelation and revelation is this last book of the Bible. It's the same root word, really, as the word apocalypse. And that, that word apocalypse doesn't mean destruction, um, although it's come to mean that more recently. It actually means uncovering. And the whole point of this book is meant to be revealing or opening up. So this is not a God who hides himself. God is not like that. God wants to reveal himself and share himself with us. 
So there's an uncovering going on here. And we said that letters were really common ways of writing in those days. Uh, and they probably used to be common ways of communicating up until the last 10, 20 years of our society. Um, we said the letters may not have been actually physically written to the churches because they're very, very similar and very structured. And they may have been published together as a collective way of John saying, this is what God is saying to the churches. And just as Rich was saying, each of us is individual. Each church has a slightly different feel to it. Each letter has a slightly different message. Um, and the, the final line, the punchline of each letter is to him who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. So obviously, if God speaks and God is cosmic and omniscient and omnipotent, um, then God is speaking at all times to all people who will listen. So we've got these seven letters to seven churches. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to look at the context of each church. Um, but just to echo what Rich is saying here, part of what we're doing here is we're trying to sense what out of this is relevant for us today? What's relevant for Epinfo's community church? And as you get things, do share them with the leaders. And we said last week that there's a really clear six part structure to each of these letters. And that structure helps us understand structures are good things because they help us to formulate things and get things together. So rather than comparing these letters um, and as somebody said last week, thinking few, thank goodness that we're not getting that letter. Um, the intention is that we learn from the things that are being said collectively. That's our plan. So as we go through this one in Ephesus um, chapter two, we've got a church here that I think we need to understand a little bit about Ephesus. So some of you will know it's on um, the coast of what is modern day Turkey. And in ancient times, it was one of the greatest seaports around. So it's right at the mouth of a river called the River Caister, which is now quite blocked up with sediment. But at that time, it was an absolutely brilliant location for a whole load of trade routes um, near the Aegean Sea. And whenever you got a really big port, you would always get a really rich, diverse culture. Um, because obviously um, boats were one of the most significant ways of getting round at that time. Um, you didn't have trains, you didn't have lorries. This was the way of getting quickly from one place to another. And the two probably greatest cultures at the time, the Greek and the Roman cultures, there were people from all of those backgrounds um, and many, many others gathering there. So ports had lots of ideas, lots of goods, lots of new things, lots of people. And, and they were kind of these places where lots of discussion would going on. Sometimes they weren't very safe. They weren't very godly. Um, and that's a really important context for us when we look at this letter. So this is a culture that goes back to about 6000 BC. So this is a really ancient place. Um, and modern Ephesus dates back to about the 10th century BC, um, so a, a significant time before Christ. Um, and most people would say it was started by a prince from Athens 
who made it one of the Greek city states. So um, for those of you who like your history, Greece basically had 10 cities um, which they based their whole culture on. And originally each city had a king and the cities like Athens and Sparta were really significant and strong in their own rights. So what we've got going on here is one of the big city states from Greece, but then Ephesus had a real difficult history over several thousand years. They were conquered by the Persians, first of all, that's Darius and Cyrus, that, that's the book of Esther, if you remember. Then they were conquered by Alexander the Great, who's not mentioned in the Bible. He defeated the Persians in Ephesus. Then the Egyptians came in for a little while and beat the Persians and Alexander the Great. And then the Pergamon kings came in and they defeated and pushed out the Egyptians. And then finally, the Romans land in this city. So it's got a lot of cultural background. And in the Roman Empire, um, so from roughly about sort of 1 AD, from about the time of Christ, and then for another couple of centuries, Ephesus is a big thing. It's probably the second biggest city in the Roman Empire after Rome itself. And for those of you who've either seen pictures of it or who've been there, there is still quite a bit of culture left in this city. You can see um, the library there, which is really significant. You can also see there, um, there's a massive kind of amphitheater like you can see in Athens. Um, and it's a really significant place with lots of ruins that you can walk around. And it's also the place where there, is, there was a temple to Artemis, uh, who was also known as Diana, um, who was a goddess. And there was a massive temple there built to her, which most people think was about four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. So if you can remember, there's that big sort of temple at the top of the hill in Athens, um, but in Ephesus, there was something about four times the size of that. So we're talking about a massive um, thing, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. So people would go to Ephesus to see this amazing, um, I guess, kind of theatre um, and library and this massive um, Parthenon kind of religious temple. So it's a really significant place, Ephesus. And it's also really significant in the Bible because um, we know that in the New Testament, John, who's written Revelation, certainly visited there. Paul, the apostle, we've got loads in Acts about Paul going there. Timothy, um, Paul's letter to Timothy. We know that Timothy's gone to Ephesus. And many people think that Mary, the mother of Jesus, probably went to live in Ephesus as well, maybe being looked after by John, because some of you will remember that when Jesus um, is being crucified, he asks Mary, um, he asks John to look after Mary. Um, and so if Mary went to Ephesus, it's very likely that John knew quite a bit about Ephesus. So this place is a big thing. Um, it really means a lot. It's very, very significant. And in Acts chapter 19, when Paul's preaching there, there is a big riot in Ephesus. 
because um, just like there are in lots of really significant cities in the world, there are people there who are selling little trinkets. So those of you who've been to Paris or been to Rome or been to London, you'll see lots of like mini Buckingham palaces. Um, or if you go to Pisa, there's like mini leaning towers of Pisa. So if you went to Ephesus, there'd be like little trinkets about, um, I'm talking about those holidays that I wish I could have. Um, but if you go to Ephesus, you would have found like these mini temples and these mini things that you could um, remember Diana by. So obviously when Paul goes there and preaches, he says, you don't need those trinkets. You don't need those things. You just need to serve and to worship Jesus. So the storeholders, and one of them is called Demetrius, they go, wow, no, 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 stop it, because their whole trade is being destroyed. Not unlike, I guess, when Jesus goes into the temple, he's kind of breaking up this context of you need this in order to worship. You've got to have a thing, a trinket. And so all of the storeholders in uh, Ephesus get really shirty and there's a massive riot. And Paul in Acts basically has to be protected by the leaders because he's preaching Christ and Christ alone. So this is the kind of context here. And then a little bit later on, Paul warns the Ephesian elders, be really careful about all these false teachers. Think about your teaching because you've got to make sure that you've got the pure religion. So it's no surprise that as we get to Revelation and we talk about the churches, people would have expected a letter to Ephesus because it's a big thing. It's a big church. It's a very significant church. Um, and therefore, this letter is going to be quite um, an important one. And it's quite likely that the Ephesian church were proud of what they were. They really like to consider themselves a significant church and they like to consider themselves as people who were following the true religion. So we hear these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So what Jesus is doing right at the start of this letter is just reminding the church at Ephesus how powerful he is. Um, the seven stars we talked about um, being messengers or angels, communicators with earth, and the lampstands represent the churches. So this image is basically meant to go, Jesus is powerful, he's authoritative, and also he wants to communicate with his churches. So he's not kind of putting the churches to one side, he's holding them close to them, he's walking among them, he's urging them on to be as good as they can. And then we said that there's a statement in every letter and the statement says, I know. It starts with I know. Now, the first thing to say is this is a cracking list of good things um, that Anthony read to us a little bit earlier. These are not a whole load of negative things. These are genuinely good things that God, through John, is saying to the church. And I just want to say to you, this is this is where we want God to be with us. We want him to be saying to us, you do this well, you do that well, you do this well, you do that well. Here's just something that you need to work on. And let's have a quick look then at the positive things. I know you work hard. I know you persevere. I know you don't tolerate evil people. 
I know that you've tested people who say that they're apostles, but aren't, and you found them false. Good work. I know that you've persevered and you've endured hardships for my name. I know you haven't grown weary. This is good praise. This is good stuff. So just a reminder for each of us, let's make this personal and let's think about this as EFCC. It is good to work hard. It's a good thing to work hard. It's a godly thing. It's good to persevere. It's good to keep on going when things are difficult. It's good not to accept evil and to make a point of calling evil out. It's good to check what's being preached and to preach the true word. And it's good not to take things at face value, but to test them. So when we were learning about the Sermon on the Mount, we heard about Jesus's teaching. Beware of false prophets. Beware of those who come and say they've got the answer, but haven't. And there are many in the world today um, who claim to be Christians and some who don't, who would tell us how to live. They'd give us the secrets of life. But what the message here is saying is persevere. Don't grow weary. Test things. When things are tough, don't give up. And as some of you were saying earlier today, when we were giving thanks to God, don't give up. Thank you, God, that you're there when things are almost impossible. And the thing for us to do is not give up. So if any of us are going through those kind of times at the moment where it's really difficult to find the good things to praise God for, then the message is don't give up. Persevere. Keep going. Don't be weary. Work hard and God will be there to reward us. And of course, this is a message to the church at Ephesus. It's not a message for individuals. So there is a real assumption, just as Rich was saying earlier today, that the church is being spoken to together and that it's not just about us as individual Christians being awesome. That's quite a modern thing. We need to be working as a church family. We need to receive messages together as a family that God wants to support us and nurture us and challenge us as a family, not just as individuals. We are much stronger together. Now, some of you may be aware that there is some football going on at the moment. And I was listening to a bit about the Welsh game yesterday. Uh, not sure if Rachel's on this call today. But one of the things I heard was about the run that Wales made in 2016 when they got all the way to the semi-finals of the Euros. And the message from the speaker um, on Five Live was they weren't good enough individually to get that far. But there was almost like a magic team ingredient where there was no one greater than anyone else. But they all knew how to arrange themselves so that basically the team succeeded. So that the team was much greater than the sum of its individual parts. And if you like football, um, it's what I call the difference between Barcelona and Real Madrid. That Barcelona is not built on superstars. It's built on humility, hard work and teamwork. That's their mantra, which is obviously in Spanish, so I don't know what it is, but it's hard work teamwork um, and it's not base and humility 
Whereas Real Madrid is based on get the best people you can, get these amazing people, and then they will be the awesome saviors for the team. That's not how the Church of God works. It works on togetherness, hard work, humility, teamwork. And as Rich would say, that's what makes the dream work. So that is what we're looking at here. It's a letter to a church, not to individuals. Um, and so getting yourself in the right place, doing what you're made to do is really important. Then we get this warning. And I want to say a bit about this warning here because the warning is pretty powerful. We said there's always a warning in each of these letters. There is something to learn from. Take note of. Um, and the King James version of this, just so that Helen, you get another version. Helen asked us last week, can we just be clear about our version? So in the King James, it says, um, I've got this somewhat against you. I've got just something against you. So it's a bit softer. But unfortunately, most commentators say, no, this is a powerful message. This is you do loads right. But here's something big, something personal and actually something really quite painful that you're going to have to get back to. And two translations use the phrase you've abandoned your first love, but others say you've left your first love. And the New Living Translation. So another translation says you don't love me or each other as you did at first. So whichever translation you want to use, this is really quite a powerful message. It's get back to your first love. And in John chapter two, when Jesus smashes up the temple, it's written zeal for my father's house will consume me. It's the same thing that Paul had when he was at Ephesus and he was preaching in a way that it didn't, nothing else mattered. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And so this letter is saying, look, Ephesians, you're doing lots of good things. You really are. But you seem to have lost or abandoned this zeal, this passion for God. And as Jill was mentioning about Chris, one of the things that came through as he was talking there and saying, God is amazing. He's awesome. We've run out of words. That's the kind of passion that that John is saying to the Ephesian church. You need to have that is the first love. And so um, I just want to say a little bit about marriage here, because um, I've only ever been married once. Um, and I was married as a bridegroom, not a bride. I was not the bride at that stage. So I don't want to veer too much into things I know nothing about. But I do know that at weddings, there's at least one moment where the bride who's got herself ready for months and months. And um, some of us probably know brides who've actually unfortunately been getting themselves ready for a wedding for about 18 months because of lockdown at the moment. Brides want to be perfect for their bridegroom they want to get themselves absolutely ready and one of my best moments at my wedding was the vows when your bride says to you I love you I commit to you maybe even I obey you um, and says I am yours and that is the thing here that Jesus is saying to the church he is saying 
that's the kind of love, affection, commitment, dedication, zeal that I want you to have, that nothing else matters as much as me. And in the same way that those of us who love Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son, and all of the surrounding bits about God's zeal in seeking out his church, that's the first love, the first passion that Jesus is saying to his church at Ephesus, I don't want you to lose that. You need to go back and think about how you've lost it. And so this is a real plea um, which then leads us to a group of commands. And so there's basically three commands in this bit. So the first one is consider how far you've fallen. The second one is repent. And the third one is do the things you did at first. So these are strong verbs, just so that we're clear. Um, they are consider, repent and do. So these are not, let's just be clear, these are not options. These are not maybe you might want to. These are do these things. So really quickly, we've got three. The first one is consider. Rich urged us a bit earlier on to go away, to talk to some friends, to think about our position, to pray, to fast. And so here, what we've basically got is Jesus through John saying to Ephesus, consider how you felt. What, what went wrong? What caused you to miss it? Reflection is a really good thing. And lots of people in today's world now, in business, in life, in their personal lives, are going away and reflecting on what they do. They're thinking about what happened, and then they're able to go, right, how do I make sure that doesn't happen again? So I do urge you with friends, with people you trust, with church leaders on your own to keep reflecting. I'm conscious, James, it's, it's part almost of celebrating recovery, isn't it? This idea of thinking through things that you've had and thinking through the past and thinking about your actions to make sure that you keep on the right track. So the first one is consider, consider the heavens, it says in the Psalms, um, think about all the good things. Second one then is repent, turn away from the bad things. So after you've considered, you often think, ah, I'm doing that that's not quite right. Well, the message is simple, we'll turn away from it then. Don't just sort of think it'd be a good thing to do, don't sort of ponder about it for ages. Do it. Repent, turn away, turn back to your first love. And then the last thing is, and then do the things that you did that were great. So, you know, when you used to do that thing, you know, when you used to do that and it was great. You know, when as an early church, you used to be involved in all of those kind of things. Go back to the things you did when you first really loved. So there's a lot going on here that is quite powerful, because if you don't do that, and then there's a warning here, if you don't do it, says Jesus, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, I am going to get rid of your church. Now, that is a big, big warning. If you do not go back to your first love, if you don't love me with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, then 
I'm just actually not going to want you as a church. Now, that's pretty obvious because God gives us chances. He gives us second chances. But the message here is there is a point where he says, do you know what? If you're going to carry on just behaving in that way and you're not going to listen to me, then I'm not happy for you to be called my church because the church is the church of Christ. And if you are deliberately ignoring what I'm saying to you, then I do not want to be associated with you. It's a stern warning, but it does make sense. Those of us who actually lead organisations, if we lead them in certain ways, we need the people who work for us to behave in a way that's consistent with our organisation. So I think you can hold these two things together the love of God, the zeal of Jesus, the fact that he wants to draw us to him, but a warning that if we don't follow him and do his things, then actually we are not going to be called part of the church of God. That's a strong message we might want to pick up on. And then this to the, the Ephesians is going to be a big thing, because remember, they know what wiping out means in the world sense. They know what it is to be occupied. They know what it is to have um, armies come and destroy their current regime. And so they would understand that this is a real thing. And so what we hope is, because this is the point, we hope that they listen to this warning and then they change. But it then comes on and it says one further thing. You do have this in your favour. So God is good. Jesus is good. And John knows how to write a good letter because he doesn't leave them with do it or you're screwed. He leaves them with actually there is this in your favor as well. You you hate, you detest those who practice the Nicolaitan practice. So he goes back again and he says, actually, this is not all bad. What you are aware of is the fact that there is this group that is in your midst and they are tempting you, causing you to consider doing things that are not godly, but you're not doing it. You're not, you're persevering with the faith. Now, in a nutshell, we don't know who the Nicolaitans are. Okay, so we don't know exactly who they are, but there are two or three really good theories about it. The first one is that Nicholas was one of the seven deacons that the early church appointed. So um, if you remember early in Acts, the church says we're going to need some people to take some of the workload um, and we're going to appoint seven deacons. And one of them is Stephen um, and another one is Nicholas. So it could well be that Nicholas, who was one of the early deacons in the church, went a bit whoop, he went a bit wayward in his thinking. Um, or it could have been that the word Nicholas is also linked to the root word in Hebrew, Balaam. And some of you will know that Balaam um, comes up in the Old Testament um, and Balaam is basically linked with um, a practice, essentially, where um, what would happen would be wives of other sects or other denominations would basically marry into the Jewish faith and they would then water it down. So there's really two ways of looking at this, but they're the same thing. There are people around Ephesus, because this is going to come up later, 
who are tempting the Christians to not be purely Christian. So maybe to marry people who worship other gods, maybe to take food that has been offered to idols, maybe just to be a bit more liberal in their way of living. And they're getting praised here, the Ephesians, for sticking to the true faith. It's a really positive message. And the bottom line is there are false teachers around then and now. There are people who are going to tempt us. We are going to feel as a church and we are going to feel as individuals tempted to be like other people. And the message is be careful here. The church is different. The church has one mission, which is to be fully focused on Jesus and to bring the kingdom of God to earth. So we've got to maintain our purity and our holiness. And perhaps as a church, EFCC, we've got to really think hard about what it means to be pure and holy in this generation. And so finally, there's this encouragement. You are doing well. And to those who are victorious, I'm going to give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in paradise. Now, eating from the tree of life is a massive thing, because back in the Garden of Eden, when the world was created, Adam and Eve could eat from the tree of life as much as they wanted until they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they were banned from that precious garden. Now, it may well have been a real garden, this place, but even if it wasn't, the symbol is that the tree of life is there for those who walk with God to eat from. This isn't just about um, you will get eternal life. This is about you will have the chance to eat, to be satisfied, to be fulfilled, and to walk with God. And when I was talking about the kingdom of God, when we were preaching about the kingdom of God um, a couple of years ago, we said that the aim of the church, the aim of Jesus, the aim of, I guess, the message of the Bible is to unite the people on earth with the King of Kings, with Jesus. The aim is not to come up with some amazing structure, the aim is that we will walk as individuals and as a church with Jesus, that we will be united to him as the bride at the end of time. So I'm not going to say anything more than um, that at this point about the letter. It's a challenging letter. It's a letter that drives us back to our first love. It's a letter that urges us to reflect and consider and it's a letter that urges the Ephesian church to stay holy and pure, even in this whirlwind of different cultures and different ideas.